Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Let's hear now the Word of God. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1. To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening. Let's turn uh, in the passage that we just read to verse 10, Psalm 45 and verse 10, where we find the psalmist under inspiration, as it were, exhorting the bride of this great king whose beauty has filled his heart with this noble theme. And now he exhorts this bride the bride of Christ, the bride of the King. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the King will greatly desire your beauty because He is your Lord. Worship Him. In this psalm, The psalmist is setting forth, as we've seen, the beauty and the glory of the king. And in doing so, the psalmist eventually comes to describe not just the king, but his companions. His companions. We read of one of them just there a moment ago. The queen, whom whom the psalmist exhorts. But you'll notice where he introduces this theme of the companions toward the end of the first half of the psalm. Midway through verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. 
So, speaking to Him as the anointed Christ, the One who's anointed with the Holy Spirit, who of course uh, produces joy as a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Uh, so, the, the oil of gladness is a symbol of the Spirit of gladness, even the Holy Spirit, who's poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ as we read in Psalm uh, or Isaiah chapter 61 previously in a previous sermon during our communion season uh, the spirit of the lord has been poured out upon me and has anointed me and so here we find king jesus anointed with the holy spirit in other words the oil of gladness more than his companions more than his companions now the fact that he's anointed more than his companions implies that his companions are anointed as well. So lest we think of these companions as rivals or as competitors, you can see the, the King James translates it fellows, which is faithful to the Hebrew, but we might get the idea, well, Jesus has these peers and he's anointed above his peers. He's superior to others who might be seeking to claim that title. And Jesus is superior. But that doesn't seem to be the logical implication here because he's anointed more than these people. In other words, it wouldn't make sense to say more than these people if these people weren't anointed at all. And so these are companions. These are those who are anointed but He's anointed in a greater sense. And we know again from Psalm 133, the imagery of the anointing being poured out upon the high priest Aaron, upon his head, and then his beard, and down to his garments. And the images of the anointing of the Lord Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. And the Holy Spirit falls upon the head and then falls upon the body of Christ from the head to the members. And so these companions are in fact the fellow recipients of this anointing. Jesus receives this anointing without measure, John says, John chapter 3. He's anointed with the Spirit above measure, but in and through Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit as the true and living members of His body. So this introduces to us the church, in other words. The King and His Spirit-anointed companions, the church, not his rivals, but his intimate friends. And that's the way this word companions is used elsewhere. Uh, Judges 20 verse 11 uses this word, and the translation is essentially those who are knit together, those who are knit together, intimate friends, companions, close associates. In Psalm 119, verse 63, you can see a reference to this as well. I am a companion, same word, I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. So we can say of, in one sense of all of us here that are worshiping the Lord and then in a particular sense as we come to the Lord's table, uh, though we're not seeking to be sectarian, Maybe some people haven't had a chance to get interviewed, but essentially we come to the Lord's table and in principle, we're surrounded by those who have professed the fear of God and faith in Christ. And these are our companions. These are our fellows, our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters. Uh, this concept, you can see it as well. I mentioned Psalm 120. Uh, well, I mentioned Psalm 133, but Psalm 122, when it speaks of God's people in the Song of Ascents ascending to Mount Zion, rejoicing to go to the house of the Lord, verse 3, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. And that word is used in that phrase, compact together. It's built together as one. It's unified, a city unified a city of companions. And you can see it in verse 8, for the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. So, 
That's what this word means. Ecclesiastes 4.10 famously uses this word in reference to two being better than one, the two companions. We often think of marriage in that particular verse, but uh, friendship in general, two companions brought together, assisting each other, warming each other, and so on and so forth. Uh, This really is brought to bear in the Song of Solomon as well, where in the Song of Solomon, you, you have an example of this sort of relationship between the king and his church as pictured as a plurality of companions. Song of Solomon 5 verse 1, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. So there's the the individual communion, Christ and the believer. But then, eat, O friends, companions. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So, the king's companions, his friends, his beloved ones, who are knit together with him through that saving union with Christ, through faith, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this psalm, Psalm 45, we see a number of these companions of the king. First, his beloved bride. Verses 9 through 11. We've already mentioned her, but uh, we're told, second half of verse 9, at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And then she's exhorted by the psalmist. We also have the honorable women. The honorable women. Verse 9, king's daughters are among your honorable women. Verse 12, the daughter of Tyre. So a Gentile princess comes with a gift for the bride of the king. Uh, Verse 14, she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. That's the bride, the queen. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. So this intimate companionship, though in an earthly marriage would be the, the king and his bride, as in the Song of Solomon where you have this interplay between the individual Shulamite and the daughters of Jerusalem who find the bridegroom's love to be better than wine, things that would be awkward in real life situations. But there's an individual and a, a plural sense of the believer married to Christ and the church as a collection of these honorable women, as Jesus says in the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom are true believers. Uh, Not just one, but there's five of them. Uh, Just noting the plurality, the corporate nature of our union with Christ as a believing people. And then you also have, in a sense, the companions of the king, his sons, his royal seed. Verses 16 and 17. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth perhaps a figurative reference there to the transition from the Old Testament, the forefathers of Christ in, in, among the Jews, many of whom were children of God, of course, but, but you see a transition with the coming of Christ that uh, the, the barren woman is far more fruitful. The Gentile church, the, the, the gospel among the Gentiles, Isaiah 54, 1 and following, uh, it, it's far more fruitful in multiplying and advancing the kingdom of God than ever it was under the, the Israelite forefathers. And so the children of God, the seed of Christ, multiply throughout the earth. And he, he sets them in union with himself, seated with him in heavenly places, princes in all the earth. And he says, uh, it says, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. So it's the, the sons, the royal seed Again, all these things representing the church. The Spirit-anointed companions of Christ. But it's difficult to avoid the obvious implication here that in Psalm 45, as in a literal wedding, the focus is on the bride. There are these other images that we'll be looking at this evening in connection with the bride, but the, the, the fullest, most emphatic picture of the church as a companion of Christ, is in the King's all-glorious bride. 
And so we need to ask the question, what is it that causes the king to rejoice in and rejoice over this bride? Because that's the implication here, I believe, when it says he's anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. The picture here is of a wedding and of a joyful groom who is beholding his beautiful bride and he's filled with gratitude, filled with gladness. This is, the, in a sense, the, the moment that he has been waiting for and he sees his all-glorious bride. What is it that causes him to rejoice in the Holy Spirit over this bride? Well, first, she is converted. She is converted. Verse 10, we see the exhortation given to this woman. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house so the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And then we're told that that's exactly what she does. She takes her marriage vows. And she marries the king. She's brought to the king in verse 14 in a robe of many colors. And she eventually enters the palace of the king. So there's sort of a wedding sermon exhorting her to her duty and she follows through on it and she enters into the eternal blessedness of her king. And in other words, she does listen. She does incline her ear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. She considers, she inclines her ear. She forgets her own people and she forsakes her father's house. And she submits and worships the Lord Jesus Christ, who then desires her beauty and whisks her away into the palace. So she is converted. It's not just an exhortation, and this is often what we find in the Scriptures, that the Scriptures will exhort the believer to do things that are already true. It's already true, for instance, that as believers, sin has no dominion over us, and yet we're exhorted, let not sin have dominion over your life. And so here the exhortation presupposes that this is her inclination and we see she follows through on it and it really represents the conversion of God's believing people. Uh, If you are a believer in Christ, you who are planning to come to the Lord's table to remember and declare His death, those of you who uh, uh, believe Christ and you confess with your mouth that He is Lord And you're coming to the table to proclaim that and to to celebrate that and to receive grace in that context. Uh, It's saying that you need to be reminded that you've been converted. This change has happened to the bride of Christ. She has forsaken her father Adam. We know in Ephesians 2, the fallen condition of all mankind in Adam is a sorry sight to behold. This is who we are. In fact, Paul says that uh, by nature, before our conversion, we were under the wrath of God just like everybody else. He says in verse 1, and you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So you were an instrument of Satan's agenda. You were dead spiritually. And we're told that this worked itself out in your life. Again, some people were converted in early age, but you get the point in principle. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God. But God intervened. He made us alive in Christ, God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. The Bible is is never short of these sorts of additional adjectives that are added. God so loved the world uh, because of not just His love, but His 
great love. Psalm 130. It's not just His redemption, it's His plenteous redemption. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Uh, He doesn't just save those who come to God through Him. He saves them to the uttermost. And that's precisely the sort of radical 180 degree work of salvation that the Lord has wrought in the lives of His children. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. She is converted. She has left behind her father Adam and her natural condition by nature, living for the pleasures of this life, the appetites of the body, the interests of the world, the flesh, the devil, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. It's in her rearview mirror. Uh, Though in the past, she lived according to the dictates of her father, the devil. And, And the works of her father, she did. And the lusts that attended uh, the, the agenda of Satan, John chapter 8, Jesus rebukes the Jews and, and He says, you're children of your father the devil. And John brings the same point up, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, but this woman is converted. She's left these things behind and she is married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is also true of believers in relation to their own families. Of course, we ought to honor father and mother, but Jesus says there are times that it's necessary to hate father and mother for the sake of Christ, for the sake of faithfulness to the Word of God and discipleship in obedience to Christ. He says, if you love your father and mother more than me, if you love your own life more than me, if you love anything more than me, but it includes father and mother, he says you're not worthy to be called a disciple. And then he says, when his father, or in, rather, when his mother and brothers come looking for him and he's preaching and teaching inside of a house, uh, he says, No, I'm not going to stop this teaching session to go outside and speak to my literal, physical mother and brethren, but rather, my mother and my brethren and my sisters, as it were, are those who hear the word of God and do it. So G- Jesus says, you've been invited and ushered into a new family. Now, praise God if that new family includes your literal physical father and mother. What a blessing that is. There's no question about that. And we ought not to use the Gospel to undermine the natural affection. The Bible actually reinforces that natural affection of honoring parents, but there are times, if necessary, and for the converted bride, no doubt, she's willing, when necessary, to forsake father and mother for the sake of her bridegroom. She is converted. And that's important to understand, dear believer, that you have been transferred, transformed. You've been brought out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. That you are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You are His. And and He is yours to have and to hold. I am my beloved's and He is mine. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And never forget that. This bride, uh, the, the groom rejoices over her because she is converted. He greatly desires her to the extent that uh, she submits to Him and loves Him and worships Him and prioritizes Him over all other things and of course, we'd say, well, that, that seems like if it was a, an, an earthly husband, that's maybe going too far. But you understand, uh, all things were made by Christ and through Christ and for Christ that He might be preeminent in all things. And that's what He demands. Those are the terms of that spiritual marriage covenant. And by God's grace, we've been enabled to receive and accept and affirm those terms and And no doubt as we reaffirm our vows, we'll be reaffirming those very terms uh, in relation to Christ, our Savior and our Lord. She is converted. And secondly, she is justified. She has been declared righteous. Though she's a sinner by nature, though she has committed many sins, 
in her past, in her father's house, she is now clothed in the gold of Ophir, clothed in these beautiful garments, uh, the fabric interwoven with gold, these beautiful garments and robes of many colors, even the robes of Christ's righteousness. Uh, you can see this in Revelation 3, 17 and 18, where the Lord Jesus is pleading with this backslidden, lukewarm church in Laodicea. He says, because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, and here's the, the wonderful counselor. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. My friends, this bride is justified. Her sins, her filthy garments have been removed She's been cleansed and washed and she's been clothed in this golden garment of Christ's perfect righteousness, the garment of salvation, the the robe dipped in the blood of the Lamb, and she is acceptable in the sight of God and beautiful in the sight of her Savior in and through His perfect righteousness. And you can see, in fact, that she's standing at His right hand. She's standing at the King's right hand. Verse 9, at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So there she's clothed in her king's righteousness and she's standing. Now my friends, as the psalmist says, if the Lord should mark iniquity, if the Lord should keep a tabulation of all of our sins and bring justice against us for all of our sinful corruption, all of our sinful deeds, even our sin in our father Adam, If the Lord were to mark iniquity, who could stand? No one could stand in His presence. Uh, In the the presence of such a consuming fire as this holy God. And yet there is forgiveness with Him that He may be feared. And so she's standing. Notice the posture of this queen. Notice the posture. And my friends, the Bible tells us that those who are righteous in Christ will stand in the judgment. The wicked will be like a tumbleweed that just blows off in the, in the wind, the dust of the earth. But God's people are like a tree planted by streams of water. Stable, secure, standing. And we will stand in the judgment because of the righteousness of Christ. And it's interesting in this psalm, that Christ is presented not merely as a king, but it's alluded to that He's a king in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest and a king, as Psalm 110 tells us. Because you'll notice that His garments are perfumed, as our our psalm book says, with cassia, aloes, and myrrh. And you can see that in verse 8. All your garments, speaking of the king, are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Now, the myrrhs and the cassia, the myrrh and the cassia are actually part of the anointing oil in the sanctuary that would have been poured upon the priest, the high priest, who represented the people, who bore the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders, on that ephod, on his heart as well, and He bore the sins of the people, as it were, before the Lord, offering sacrifices and uh, seeking atonement through the blood of these sacrifices. Atonement for the sins of God's people. And and this is the picture of this king. He has this priestly anointing. He's not merely a king, but he has redeemed his people. And it's not through the blood of bulls and goats that our sin is removed, but it is through the Lord Jesus Himself, the High Priest, who is both the priest and the sacrifice, offering Himself up without spot unto God for our justification. And so, the the believer is filled with the aroma of Christ. 
Remember when Noah, when he got out of the ark, offered a sacrifice to God and the nostrils of the Lord, as it were, were filled with the, the, the wonderful scent and aroma of that sacrifice. Well, it wasn't necessarily the incense, perhaps, that Noah was using, but ultimately it's saying that the Lord was seeing in that a type of the perfect sacrifice of Christ that appeases His wrath and, and turns, turns away His wrath and obtains His gracious favor, even as He appointed it to do. Now, we know in our sinfulness that we don't smell good. We don't smell good at all. The Bible describes our best works as filthy rags. And I don't know how many of you do the laundry, but um, there, there are various kinds of filthy rags I'm sure we could talk about. But if you've done the laundry, you know at times you, you, you've got a basket full of dirty laundry. Uh, perhaps if you have young kids, it's even more, uh, what I'm saying resonates even more. Uh, it doesn't smell good. The Apostle Paul describes his best righteousness as a Pharisee as dung in the sight of God. That, I can tell you, does not smell good. I don't need to tell you. It doesn't smell good. Peter describes our sin as vomit, a dog returning to its vomit. Vomit does not smell good. But you see, all these pictures of our sin by nature are are so important for us to have a a sense, even a smell of our own unworthiness and then come to this text and we see this high priest whose garments are perfumed with cassia, aloes, and myrrh. And we see this beautified, cleansed bride, a companion who's had the oil of gladness poured out upon her in and through her bridegroom. And we are filled with the aroma of Christ. And we come to this table And we ought to, by faith, we ought not to smell our sin, as it were. We ought to smell the aroma of Christ, even as He has clothed us in these garments of salvation. Thirdly, uh, he, He rejoices over His bride because she is being sanctified. She is being sanctified. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that the bride... The church of Christ is not just being sanctified, but she's being sanctified by her bridegroom, by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. You see the, the companionship here between Christ and the church. He loved the church and gave Himself for the church. He sacrificed of Himself for the good of the church, for the salvation of the church, but also for the sanctification of the church. So that not only through our justification could we have this abominable stench removed, but we would also be purified in our own natures. Sanctified, transformed, as it says here, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. Now that's not the same as justification. Justification, the moment you believed, all of your sin was, as it were, transferred away, uh, taken away by Christ on the cross, and that's applied to you, and now also all of His righteousness is imputed to your account. And again, that's that's applied to you at that moment as well. And you are as justified at that moment as you're ever going to be throughout your entire life. You can never be more justified than at the moment of your conversion because you receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. It can't be added to or subtracted from. It can't be made any better. certainly won't be made any worse. And, and so that's your justification. But sanctification is different. It happens uh, gradually. You're regenerated. You're converted. So you now are willingly married to Christ. You've submitted yourself and turned your back on the world and devoted your life to Him. But that process continues. You need to be exhorted continually by the Word of God. As the psalmist exhorts this bride, listen, consider, incline your ear, worship, obey, submit to this Lord that you've embraced. And we need that. We need the Lord to continually exhort us and wash us and cleanse us with water by the Word 
and sanctify us in the truth. And we're told that that gradual process, though in a sense we get frustrated, we get impatient. Uh, I think there was a a minister who preached here before I came to be the pastor here, but I remember seeing a a sermon on the list there where uh, a now retired minister preached a sermon in this congregation called Patience, I Want It Now, right? So we're we're impatient even at the fact we're not as patient as we ought to be. Uh, we're frustrated with that. Who will deliver me from this body of death, says Paul, in the midst of his gradual progressive sanctification? Uh, There's a sense in which we should be discontented and always uh, leaving behind what's behind us and striving forward by the grace of God. But the fact of the matter is, we're assured here that this is leading to a climax that we will be fully sanctified, that He might present her to Himself, verse 27, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, uh, there's a sense in which when we elect elders, they need to be blameless, uh, or deacons even. I think we heard a helpful exposition of that in one of our teaching times from one of our elders. And so uh, there's a sense of blamelessness that means above reproach. But here, the idea is we will be holy and blameless before Him in love, as Ephesians 1 says. We will be perfected. Uh, The spirits of just men made perfect in glory, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. And so He's going to present us to Himself as a glorious church. And when is He going to do that? He's going to do that when He returns. He's going to do that at the day of judgment. So it is the case that when we all give an account before the judgment seat of Christ that we ought to have a sense of fear and trembling to give an account for the deeds done in the body. There's no question. But we ought to have a sense of anticipation that ultimately the the, the grand purpose of that day of judgment, though there will be an accountability, uh, at the same time, Jesus is planning to present us to Himself as a glorious church. He's planning to showcase His bride for all to see the beauty and glory of His bride. And uh, so much more could be said about that, but we ought to be anticipating the day of judgment. And we ought not to be afraid of it with a fear of dread or a fear of wrath because Jesus has promised to complete the work He's begun and it's ultimately His glory that's at stake. And uh, imagine uh, a mechanic working on his own car, right? Uh, We would assume that an honest mechanic is going to work hard in fixing anybody's car, but if he's fixing his own car, maybe he's fixing up Uh, a classic car, his pride and joy, okay, something that he can fix up and then drive on the dream cruise or something like that. He's fixing it, he's preparing it for himself, and he's treating it with that special care because it belongs to him. We can be absolutely certain that Christ is is not going to cut corners in perfecting our sanctification. He's not going to cut corners in this life. And He's not going to cut corners so that somehow we fall short of this perfection because the whole purpose of our sanctification is to bring Him pleasure and to bring Him glory as He presents us to Himself a glorious church. We will be His handiwork. All of our good works, are his, we're His workmanship performing the good works that He's set before us, Ephesians 2. And ultimately, we're His science fair project. Right? We're, we're His project. His name, His honor, His glory is on us. And He will present us in all perfection with no flaws, no spots, wrinkles, blemishes, or any such thing. We will be holy and without blemish before Him. And that's a glorious thought. And it's a a wonderful motivation to be fellow workers with Him, cooperating in some sense, without denying the absolute sovereignty of God in our sanctification, uh, striving in the power of the Spirit for holiness. 
That's a motivation that we're actually working towards something beautiful. We're working towards something glorious. And as He's working in us, we work out our salvation. And so it motivates us to listen. uh, To obey. We don't like to listen. We don't like to obey by nature. right? We're children of disobedience and in our flesh that continues to one extent or another. But this motivates us to listen, to obey, to worship Christ as our Lord. There is forgiveness with Him, therefore we fear Him. Uh, We've been forgiven much, therefore we love much. And if we love Him, we obey His commandments. And and it's a, a real relationship. It's a real relationship. And what I mean by that is that our holiness, though it does not impact the Lord's benevolence toward us, His goodwill, His good favor, the love of benevolence, in which He loved us when we were still sinners, it can't increase that. Right? That's infinite. That's eternal. That's not going to change. But at the same time, there is a love of complacency or a love of delight that the Scripture speaks of. And that's what it's speaking of in verse 11. So the King will greatly desire your beauty because He is your Lord. Worship Him. So So as we grow in holiness and devotion and loyalty, forsaking all others, and seeking first the Lord Jesus Christ, our relationship with Him deepens. And holiness absolutely impacts our felt intimacy and communion with Christ. It impacts His love of complacency for us. In other words, the more He sees the holiness that He's producing in us, the more He rejoices in that holiness that He's producing in us, and the more He delights in us as His handiwork. And so there's a motivation here. The more intimate, the more joyful, uh, the more deep and desirable we want our relationship to be with Christ, beautifying ourselves, as it were, for our bridegroom, then we're going to be motivated uh, so that we will please Him more and more. And that's, that's the whole point, right? We want to please God. Well, the more we please Him, uh, the more pleased He is in that sense. Again, not the ultimate foundation of His love for us, but it's important. It's important to remember that it's a real relationship and that ultimately, we will be all glorious within the palace. Now, if you look at that statement in verse 13, it can be... Uh, challenging to really discern the meaning here. Because in the New King James, it says the royal daughter, that's the bride, that's us, that's the church, Christ's believing people. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. And as I said, if you take it as within the palace, you'll notice that the words the palace are in italics, which means they've been supplied by the translators because the word within is often used in that respect. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's often used to to refer to being inside a particular place or building. And so it's a common way of understanding this verse that she is all glorious within the palace and her clothing is woven with gold. Now, if that's the meaning, it means we're looking forward to that perfection. That day when we will be all glorious Not just from glory to glory, but glorious perfection in that house made without hands, eternal in the heavens, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it could mean something else. All glorious within could actually be understood without adding the word the palace at the end. Maybe it's referring to the believer's new heart. That she's all glorious within. In other words, her old heart has been removed. A new heart, a new hidden person of the heart has been placed in her. And her new man, her new person, her regenerate nature is all glorious within her. In other words, she's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the grace of God within her is all glorious, not perfectly glorious, but glorious in all aspects of her nature. There's a glory that God places in the temple of the believer's heart at conversion. 
And that could be the meaning here. Or it could mean that the royal daughter is, is all glorious within the secret place of the Almighty. As she's in that secret place of communion and fellowship in prayer, in meditation. That secret place, that uh, pavilion far from the strife of tongues and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. There's a glory in that place. But I think we can say for certain that it reminds us that in fact this church, this uh, bride is destined to be all-glorious within the palace of heaven. And that leads us to our fourth point. She's destined for glory. She's destined for glory. Verses 14 and following. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. You see some of the imagery of the parable of the ten virgins here where they're awaiting this marriage feast that's coming and you have all these virgins. It doesn't actually mention the bride there because in fact the the ten virgins represent the bride of Christ in that parable or at least the visible bride of Christ. But the the point is they're they're heading in for the the celebration. Uh, They're brought to the king together. The bride and her virgin companions. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. And this reminds us that there's coming a day when every believer will be brought to the King. This is what we look forward to. Uh, Romans 8 verse 30 tells us that it's an absolutely sure thing that every believer and and the the true church, the, the, the invisible bride of Christ collectively shall be glorified. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called through the Gospel. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. As if it's already finished. He he glorified. Past tense. It's that certain. It is this everlasting covenant in all things well-ordered and secure. She is destined for glory. She's destined to be brought to the King. And in a sense, this happens individually. It's appointed for all of us, and especially we think of believers here, it's an appointment of Christ, an appointment of the Lord Himself, uh, the day that we exit this life. And for us, as with the dying thief, for us, as with Lazarus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that day of our death is the day in which we're absent from the body and present with the Lord in heaven. We will be brought to the King. Every believer will be brought to the King. Genesis 25.8, we're told that Abraham, when he died, was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. And lest you think that's a reference to his burial, it's not. Uh, I don't have the reference, but I, I was reading it just, uh, just yesterday, uh, where it makes reference to the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. Maybe I'll send it to the email list, but the point is it makes reference to the burial of one of those patriarchs, and, and they specify that they're, where they're to be buried, and then there's a reference to them being gathered to their people, and it's clear that these, these are two separate things that uh, burial with the patriarchs in, I think it's actually uh, Jacob, the Jacob's burial, where he says, bury me in Canaan, take me to Canaan. And he commands them that in the future uh, they would take him to Canaan, but he's gathered to his people at his death. Anyway, I'll send that out. But the point is, these are two separate things. It's not the burial. that He's gathered to his people. Uh, just like unconverted Ishmael was gathered to his people at his death, and Judas at his death went to his own place. The believer will be gathered to his people, brought to the king. And every indication in the Scriptures is that this will be done by the angels. Now it will be in the twinkling of an eye, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But in Luke 16, verse 22, Jesus says that Lazarus, when he died, that his soul was taken by the angels into glory, in, into uh, Abraham's bosom, where Abraham was, was, 
had been gathered to his people, and now Lazarus is gathered to his people in the presence of God in heaven. And so it's not meant to give us the impression that at death, an angel, you know, takes up our soul, and then there's this period of time where there's a lapse of time, and the angel uh, takes us on a flight to heaven. But what it's saying is that we will be brought and introduced, making an entrance into glory, as it were introduced by the angels in heaven. We see that with Elijah as well, when he was taken up into heaven uh, bodily. But the Lord wouldn't put that in the parable if there was nothing to it. Uh, We see as well at the last day, Matthew 24, that the angels will be sent forth to gather the elect from the four winds. To gather the elect from the four winds. So the angels seem to have this exalted role in this process of bringing us to the King. And it's important for us to view death that way, whether it's our own death or whether it's the death of a a loved one who is dying in the Lord, that the moment, the date of their death is the date, the moment when they're brought to the King, when they're brought into the presence of the King. It's a day of sorrow for those that are left behind, but it's not a day of sorrow for Abraham when he's gathered to his people. It's not a day of sorrow, though it was a parable, for Lazarus, as it were, to be gathered into the bosom of Abraham. It's not a day of sorrow for those who are brought to the king. Here, the idea of being brought to the king in robes of many colors, with virgins and companions, gladness, rejoicing. Yes, the deathbed is a a time of sorrow on this side of heaven. But on the other side, it's a time of gladness and rejoicing as another member of the Bride of Christ is brought into the palace of the King. And it does say that, that we're we're not just brought to the King, but we enter the King's palace. And, And there's coming a day when the Bride of Christ collectively, collectively at the last day, having been raised up and the angels gather us from the the four winds and set us there before the Lord at His right hand as His sheep. And He he says that uh, we're to enter into the joy of our Lord and, and He ushers us in to the palace of that eternal communion with Him that, that He has gone to prepare for us. And this is why it's so important, my friends, to make your calling and election sure. It's so important to make sure that your full faith and trust is in Christ Himself and only Christ for your right standing with God, for for your sanctification, for the transformation of your life, liberating you from bondage to sin. Uh, It's important to be certain that yes, you're married to Christ, that you've devoted yourself to Him, not perfectly, but sincerely, He is your Lord, and you worship Him, and He is your all in all, though you wish that you were more and more faithful. But it's important to know that you are part of this bride of Christ for this very reason. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things you will never stumble. In other words, if you're actively seeking, as the previous verses say, not just to profess faith, but to exercise it, to add to it virtue and knowledge and self-control and all the fruit and graces of the Holy Spirit, you're laboring imperfectly, but genuinely to be more like Christ and, and you can see that God has chosen you through His work in your life. And you can see it in the promises that He's extended to you in Christ. And so you make your calling and election sure. You're vigorously pursuing godliness. And He says this, verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Is there anything more valuable than that? Whatever supposed rewards in heaven, is there anything more valuable than that? 
to hear that from Jesus Christ himself entering the king's palace. And and Peter says, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in serving Christ as, as difficult as it may be from day to day because for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. Don't back your way into heaven. Don't be like Lot who was scarcely saved. Uh, An entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, in which you shall be brought to the king and enter in the king's palace. Now, as you can see in this psalm, this bride is surrounded by her godly companions. Uh, She's a companion, but again, there's a plurality here. The Christian life is not lived in a vacuum. We're not uh, Lone Ranger Christians. We're part of a body. We're part of a community of faith, part of the family of God. Use whatever metaphor you prefer. Uh, There are other branches on the vine. There are other living stones in the temple. We're brought together in Christ as we see portrayed at this communion table. And, and so it is in the imagery of Psalm 45. She's brought to the king in robes of many colors, but her virgin companions follow her. And, and they're brought to the king. And so it's just like the Song of Solomon. Uh, we're running together. It's not just one person. It's not just Jesus died for my sins, but you know, He died for all of our sins. And I want you to picture, I'm going to bring this up, Lord willing, at the, at the table in a moment, but uh, picture the sins of God's people. Think, picture the, the sins of the other people at this communion table, heaped one upon another and, and laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just my sins, not just your sins, dear believer, but all of our sins. The sins of all the believers in Southfield Reformed Presbyterian Church. My sins, right next to your sins. Understand it's our sins collectively. And, and, and so we need to understand this salvation is not just individual, but it is collective for every true believer in union with the other members of the body. And she's surrounded by other virgin companions who are also headed into intimate fellowship with the king. And there's not an envious, jealous relationship, but there is perfect peace. Perfect peace among the virgin uh, lovers and adorers of this beautiful king. She's surrounded by the honorable women, by the king's daughters, by the princess of Tyre, showing that it's every tribe, tongue, and nation. The the people at this communion table are not all the same. Uh, We're not all the same. We're not all of the same ethnic background. We're not all of the same upbringing. We have many differences And there's a sense in which, apart from this Savior and this table, this is the only imaginable way that all of us would be here together doing what we're doing, apart from the grace of God who chose us. We we didn't choose each other any more than we chose God. And that's not something to lament about. That's something to appreciate. And here you see she's brought together with all these royal daughters, the princess of Tyre, the virgin companions, Uh, You you envision the godly children, the family of God, the royal family. And that's how we ought to view each other, my friends, as part of something special, the royal family, something important. Coming to this table means something. Uh, The people around you are honorable men and women. They're to be viewed as royal sons and daughters, princes in the earth, ruling and reigning with Christ. Uh, Jesus says in Psalm 16 that he, his, his heart rejoices in the saints throughout the earth. That's, that's the kind of fellowship we ought to have. Not because we've earned it, but because we haven't. Because you haven't and I haven't, therefore none of us have earned it. And therefore we freely give this honor. Because it's freely been given to us by Christ. And my friends, she enters... At the end of this psalm, toward the end, she enters into the unspeakable joy of her Lord. Verse 7 tells us that he was anointed with joy, but notice verse 15, she and her companions with gladness and rejoicing are brought 
and enter the king's palace. The anointing of joy is an anointing that flows from Christ to every believer. And, and again, that's the imagery we find on the day of judgment. Yes, we ought to take seriously. And I don't want to downplay this, and I'll be done in just a second. But listen, uh, the day of judgment is a fearful day. For the godliest Christian, it's a fearful day. But understand, we're anticipating. We're anticipating the kisses of His mouth. Well done, good and faithful servant. An abundant entrance into His everlasting kingdom. And those glorious words, enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, You are the source of all of our joy. And You have given us this beloved One, this Savior who is perfumed with all of the high priestly uh, aromas of His sacrifice and who causes us to be filled in this place with that aroma and scent of His perfect righteousness and sacrifice and obedience. We pray that we would not only have boldness and confidence to come into Your presence as those who are accepted in the Beloved, but that we would love and accept one another and that we would, as it were, smell the the sweet fragrance and aroma of Christ on one another as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.